So this morning, um, in Matthew's gospel, again, in chapter 22, we're going to start with verse 41. This is another encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. It is probably in context, as far as space and time goes, this is probably tied very closely to the previous encounter that we looked at last week with the Pharisee who asked what the greatest commandment was. But there's something different about this encounter. So pay attention as we read this morning. See if you can figure out what the difference is in this encounter versus the others. Let's all go ahead and stand up. Matthew 22, starting in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage that is no doubt familiar to most of us here, help us to understand the importance of Jesus' question. Help us to understand why it is critical for us to appropriately identify who Jesus is. Father, we pray this in his name, for his sake. Amen. Please have a seat. All right, did anybody figure out what the difference is between this encounter and the previous ones? This time Jesus is asking the question. All of the previous encounters, when the chief priest and the elders came, their question tested Jesus and his authority. Then the Pharisees came, testing his loyalty to Israel when they asked about the, uh, the, the poll tax. Is it lawful to pay the poll tax? And uh, then it was the Sadducees who tested his understanding of the Torah and how it applied to the resurrection when they asked the question about the woman who was married and she didn't have any kids and so on and so forth. And then last week, the, the Pharisee lawyer who asked the question, which is the greatest commandment? So again, seeking to find out Jesus' fidelity to the law of God. This time, Jesus asked the question. I don't know why. I don't know what his plan was. I don't know what his goal was. Scripture doesn't tell us. But we can gather some things just from the, 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 the passage as we read it. This is an opinion question. This is the kind of question the Pharisees would hammer out between themselves when they got together and and met for these philosophical discussions. They would pick some passage of Scripture, and they would have a debate about what it means, and then they would come to a consensus, and that became the oral tradition. So here Jesus points this question, uh, whose son is the Messiah? Whose son is the Christ? Um, It's not the first time Jesus has asked somebody this question either. If you remember, um, back in, I believe it was chapter 16, uh, might might be 15, but I think it was 16, um, when they were in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asked that question of his disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Right? 
And that's where the disciples came back and they said, well, some say he's Elijah and some say he's the prophet. Some say he's John the Baptist. And Jesus said, okay, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter makes his great confession of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So Jesus says, the Christ, whose son is he? Of all of the parties that Jesus has dealt with, first the chief priests and the elders of the people. So the chief priests would have been the, the people of the high priestly line, the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron. The elders of the people would have been those who had served the longest, the people, the, the, the wise people in, in the city of Jerusalem. And we've talked about the Pharisees, we've talked about the Sadducees, and we've talked about the Herodians. Which parties, so you've got the chief priests, you've got the Pharisees, you've got the Sadducees, and you've got the Herodians. Of those four groups, which ones support the coming of a future king in Judea? There's only two. The Pharisees and the Herodians. Okay, the chief priests and the Sadducees, because if you remember, the Sadducees are actually from the priesthood, right? They wanted the priesthood to rule Jerusalem. They were happy with the idea that the priests were the ones who kept things according to Scripture, at least according to the first five books. The Pharisees and the Herodians both sought a restored kingdom with a king in Jerusalem. Now, (coughs) between the Pharisees and the Herodians, there were two different lines for kingship. The Pharisees supported a king from which line? David. The Herodians supported a king from the line of Herod the Great. So Jesus is asking the question to the Pharisees, the party that supported the kingship of the line of David. And he asked the question, whose son is the Christ? Now, I'm going to switch back and forth between the word Christ and the word Messiah. Does anybody know why? Okay, the Hebrew word Messiah means anointed. The Greek word Christos means anointed. So everywhere in the New Testament where you see the word Christ, the Hebrew equivalent is the word Messiah. They're equal. So Jesus asked the question, whose son is Messiah? Whose descendant will the Messiah be? He does not identify himself by any messianic name. When he asked the question to the the disciples in Caesarea Philippi, he said, who do the people say that the son of man is? And Jesus has been calling himself the Son of Man 
for his entire ministry with the disciples. And Son of Man actually points towards prophecy in Daniel. Daniel had a vision of one coming like a Son of Man who was worthy to receive the scroll and take leadership and rulership of the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, supporting a king from the line of David, the idea here was that the Messiah would be that anointed king. And so they answered, he's David's son. David's descendant will be Messiah. There's lots of good support in the Old Testament for that statement. And they were mostly correct. More important than their being correct or incorrect, they identified Christ, Messiah, as the king from the line of David. That word, anointed, When we're talking about Jesus, there's a special emphasis on the word. But there are many people in the Old Testament who are called anointed. If you think back to the first king of Israel, King Saul, the prophet Samuel, after the people all clamored together, we want a king like everybody else has, The prophet Samuel, after he gave God's warning, no, you don't. Yeah, we really do. We want a king like all the other people have. No, you don't. You get a king, you're going to have taxes. You're going to have to, you have to uh, send your sons to the military and your daughters are going to be put into servanthood and, and all this other kind of stuff. And we still want a king. So God told the prophet Samuel, go to Saul and do what? Anoint him. Saul was, therefore, at that point in time, a Messiah. He was an anointed king. When the Spirit left Saul and Samuel was called on again to go anoint the new king, he went to the home of Jesse, and he he met with Jesse, and Jesse was blown away because he had this holy man of God, this prophet, come into the house and, and the prophet said, now bring in your sons. And so Jesse brought in all of his sons, all except for the runt of the litter who was out in the field with the sheep where he was supposed to be. And none of them were it. So after all the sons went past, Samuel looks at him and says, this this all you got? Because God said that one of your sons was going to be the king, but every time one of them has walked past, he said, no. He said, well, the only one I've got left is David, but he's like 12. Bring him in. David comes in and God says, that's the one, anoint him. And David becomes Messiah, anointed king. That term isn't just confined to the people of Israel. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the future king of Persia who is going to permit the people to return from their exile to rebuild Jerusalem. His name is Cyrus. Isaiah calls him out by name. And Isaiah calls him the anointed one of God. King Cyrus of Persia is a Messiah. 
But by this point in time, that word Messiah has come almost exclusively to mean the future king who would rule Jerusalem. That's what the Pharisees were thinking. The anointed one of Israel, the Messiah, was expected to be from the line of David and destined for the throne of his ancestor. When David was on the throne, when David was was suffering at the end of his life, God promised him that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. So, for those who were looking for the arrival of Messiah, the Pharisees, they got it at least partly right. Good job. But then Jesus asked him another question. He says, okay, all right, I got got you. The Christ will be the son of David. But let me ask you this. If he's David's son, then how come David calls him Lord? And then he quotes from Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If you look at that in your Bibles, right, take a look at it. I want you to notice something about the text. Okay, first, it says the Lord, and that word Lord is in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay. Little bit of Bible interpretation for you. I'm going to help you out with your Hebrew. When you see in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that represents the covenant name of God. So really what David wrote was, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet for a footstool. Okay? So Yahweh said, God said to my Lord. The second word, Lord, the L is capitalized. The rest of it is lowercase. No? Really? Hmm. Okay. Some Bibles are are breaking with tradition then. The second Lord should be capital L, little O-R-D. The Hebrew word there, actually it's a Greek word in the New Testament. The word there is the word Adonai. Okay, the word there is the word Adonai. So, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Both of those are names for God. Adonai talks about God's lordship being the master, being the one, the ruler, the sovereign. 
God's name, Yahweh, talks about his covenant relationship with his people. There are some other words that are used in the Old Testament for God. You have the word Elohim, right? That talks about God's power and his strength. Uh, that, that actually translates as almighty, is the word Elohim. So here, David, who wrote Psalm 110, says, God said to my master, to my Lord, to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. Well, everybody in Jesus's day, everybody understood that Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm. It was a psalm talking about the Messiah, the future Messiah, the coming king. God would say to him, sit at my right hand. But David called him Lord. That's not how this royal thing works. Now, I know this is hard for us as Americans to wrap our heads around because a couple hundred years ago, we took that whole royalty thing and kicked it to the curb. We don't do kings anymore. We do elected officials. We do congressmen and senators and, and presidents and governors and mayors. And, and, and you can bet your bottom dollar that I will never ever, 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 ever refer to any of them as Lord or Master. It's not going to happen. But in that kind of royalty established setup here, you do not see a father or a grandfather or a great-grandfather or a great-great, triple-great, quadruple-great, whatever, You do not see them call their descendant Lord. As David is laying on his deathbed and Solomon has been anointed as king, how does David address Solomon? My son. Solomon's been anointed as king. God has said, Solomon's going to be king after you die. He ain't yet. This is why Jesus asked the question. Because if David wrote this psalm, and David was under the influence of the Holy Spirit when he wrote this psalm, then how does he call his grandson Lord? (coughs) That doesn't work. It doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. What do you think Jesus was getting at? He didn't tell the Pharisees they were wrong, right? He looked at the whole conversation. Who do you say that the Messiah's son, uh, who is the Messiah son of? Bad English construction. He's David's son. Then how does David call him Lord? He doesn't call him wrong. He doesn't say, no, that's incorrect. Because they're not incorrect. They're just not totally right. I think the point he was trying to get across was that their idea of Messiah was incomplete. They didn't understand what the Messiah came to accomplish. They didn't understand God's purpose for Messiah. And I've got, I'm going to do something really weird Uh, You might not think it's weird, but I'm going to defend the Pharisees for a minute. 
because they were indicative of almost everybody in Israel since the days of Abraham, if not further. We have the same propensity to fall into their way of thinking. We put God in a box based on our understanding. The Jews did it, the apostles did it, and we do it all the time. Let's let's pop back to Abraham for just a minute. God appears to Abram in the, 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 the wilderness, if you will, in the land of Ur, of the Chaldeans. He appears to Abram and he says, leave your father's home and go to a land which I'm going to give you as a perpetual inheritance for your descendants forever. Okay? What kind of terminology is God using there? It's physical. It's human terminology, right? Leave here, go there, and your descendants are going to own that for the rest of eternity. That's land. I understand land. I, right now, am enjoying the privilege of paying the bank for my little third of an acre parcel in Biloxi. I won't say that I own it. I own two bathrooms and most of a kitchen. That's that's what I have paid for so far. <laughs> and four ceiling fans, because I bought them. Now, no, they live there rent-free. Um, but that's human terms. And, and as we fast forward through, right, through past Isaac and, and Jacob and and... Jacob's sons, the the tribes, right? We see that inheritance come to fruition. And then we have the, the, the period of the judges where they don't obey and they start losing land, right? Because they get invaded by the Midianites and the Jebusites and the Philistines and all these other groups come in and start taking their territory back because they're not obeying. Well, this, I understand this. This is a land war. And for the sake of my family, I'll point out it's a land war in Asia. Um, but the, that's a, a quote from a movie, by the way. Um, everything is physical. It's tangible. And then we get to the point where David shows up on the scene and we have a kingdom. And God tells David, you will have a son on the throne of the kingdom Forever. Here's a throne. David, you're the king. You sit on a throne. You will have a descendant who sits in that throne forever. That's a physical, tangible, I understand this concept. Fast forward. Solomon sits in the throne. And then his son, Rehoboam, He sits on the throne, but he's an idiot. Like most immature young men, he listens to his peers. He doesn't listen to the wisdom of the elders. And so the kingdom is split and we lose land again, right? And we keep going and it's still physical, tangible, understandable kingdom. 
And now we get all the way forward to where the, the northern kingdom gets taken into exile by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom gets taken into exile by the Babylonians. Everybody's in captivity, and then the Persians come in, and they take over Babylon, and the Persians send the Jews back to Israel to rebuild the temple. Well, guess what we've done? We're back into the economy of land. Fast forward, the Greeks show up on the scene, and they take care of the Persians, and then the Greeks fall into disrepair, and then the Romans show up, and the Romans take over, and we still have a physical kingdom. And everything that God's Word says about a Messiah is fit into this box. Messiah is going to be a king. Where does a king sit? On a throne. What does a king rule? A physical kingdom. Because that's what we understand. Jesus here in asking this question to the, the Pharisees points to the fact that the it's not just an idea, it's a fact that God's plan extends beyond what we can wrap our heads around. All the Pharisees were looking for was a return to Jewish preeminence. All they were looking for was those dirty Romans to get kicked out of Jerusalem. That's God's country. Contrary to popular belief, God's country is not Texas. It's definitely not Texas if you've ever lived in San Antonio. Um, They put God in a box. They understood. The general Hebrew understood that the king would come from the line of David. That means genetically he was a descendant of David. I get it. In fact, if you flip back to chapter 1 of the book of Matthew, and if you flip over to, I think it's chapter 2 in Luke's gospel, I could be wrong about that, there is a genealogy for Jesus. What do we need a genealogy for? To show us that he's a descendant of David. But in Israel... By Jesus' time, there was never really a full understanding that the Messiah would have anything to do with more than just the physical kingdom. The promised land was that. It was land. It was the land of Canaan. They didn't have a concept of an afterlife in heaven until Jesus started teaching it. Even the idea of a resurrection. What happens when you get a resurrected body? It takes up space, right? So where do things go that take up space? You need land. You have to have a place to put them. Their entire notion of God's kingdom was confined to the physical realm. They never correlated the title of Messiah with the one that Isaiah said would be born of a virgin. They never thought that the Messiah would be conceived miraculously or that he would be the Son of God in any special way. Now, they knew he'd be the Son of God, but of course they considered everybody who was a descendant of Abraham to be a Son of God. And that's because every aspect of the kingdom that they had ever experienced was physical. 
where God had promised the inheritance to Abraham. Now, remember when I said that it's easy for us to fall into that same trap? There are some people who consider the United States to be the second Israel. We are not. I'm, I'm very likely to make some enemies this morning. Contrary to popular belief in the conservative church in the United States, America is not now, nor has it ever been, a Christian nation. Was it founded on Judeo-Christian principles? Yes. There has not ever been a period of time in the United States where the majority of the population has been Christian. It's never happened. There's never been a population anywhere that has been a majority Christian. The words in Scripture that are used to describe the Christian population, the word that is most commonly used is the word remnant. Now, if you go to Joanne Fabrics or you go to Hobby Lobby, not today, they're closed. But if you go to one of those stores that sells fabric, you go look at the upholstery fabric, right? And it comes on this gigantic, large tube, and it's rolled up, and it's a lot of fabric. And then you turn and you walk to the other corner, and you see a pile of little scraps with a tag on them. You know what they're called? Remnants. That's the word that describes the church. We're not a Christian nation. We are Christians who live in a nation. Technically, who are just passing through a nation. There are those who believe Jesus has a special place for the United States. I wish. I challenge you, read the, read the book of Revelation, read Daniel, read Ezekiel, and tell me where you see the nation of America listed. It's not. Don't get me wrong, I don't hate our country. I've spent the last 25 years serving our country and defending our country. I am very happy that I'm American and not pick another nationality. Okay? But, biblically... We're no different than any other nation. There are even people, and now I'm, I'm definitely going to get some nasty looks. There are people who think that because the United States has traditionally thrown our support behind the nation state of Israel in the Middle East, that we are somehow special in God's economy. All right. I'm going to point this out. This is a fact. If you don't believe me, go research it on the internet. If I'm wrong, bring it to me next Sunday. I will publicly renounce what I have said, and I will step down. Israel, the nation, is primarily made up of atheists, agnostics, Muslims, and humanists. There are Buddhists. There are Hindus. There are every religion but Jewish. And even the ones who do still follow Judaism, there's about 13 different flavors. 
You have ultra-conservative Judaism, and then you have ultra-liberal Judaism, and the whole spectrum in between. Even the ones who do still claim to follow don't follow anything that Judaism taught in Jesus' day. Not only that, but they have rejected the one thing that Scripture says over and over and over and over and over, and that is that salvation comes by what? Faith alone. In what? Christ alone. They rejected him. Paul makes the case in Romans that not all who are Jews are of Israel. Not all who are descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are Israel. Certainly not all those who live in the land that we call Israel are Israel. I dare say the Christians that live in Israel, who, by the way, tend to be a persecuted minority by the majority of people who live in Israel, are Israel. That being said, is there anything about the land of the free and the home of the brave that guarantees us a a special place in God's sight? No. No, there's not. More than that, we in the church have a tendency to be short-sighted when we come to understanding God's kingdom. For example, we hear the phrase, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Anybody know where I can find that? Romans. But we think of that in terms of immediate and temporal good. If I'm facing a tough situation, you <laughs> I have heard this. I shouldn't laugh. It's actually a sad thing. But I have heard Christians who are going through a tough time say that over and over and over again like a mantra. If I say it enough times, God's going to get me out of this. I don't, that's not scripture, sorry. What does God mean when he says all things work together for good? All things. That means the bad things. That means the things that we'd rather avoid. That means that tumor. That means that bankruptcy. That means that divorce. That means that murder that happened in a family. That means that abandonment as a child. That means all things work together for the good of those who love God. If you're a believer, if you love God, he doesn't say you're going to avoid those things. He says he's going to use those things for your good. He can't use them if he gets you out of them. He can't use them if you don't go through them. God's kingdom is bigger than what we can wrap our brains around. Scripture promises the opposite for the believer. Not that we're going to be delivered from persecution or that we're not going to have to go through tribulation. Scripture promises the opposite. What did Jesus say to the disciples in the upper room discourse? In in John, starting chapter 15, going around uh, chapter 18, 19, right? Jesus is talking to the disciples for the last time before his crucifixion. And he says, oh, by the way, just remember, when they hate you, they hated me first. 
When they persecute you, they persecuted me first. When they drive you from the synagogue and they take away your businesses and your family disowns you and you're living on the street because they've taken everything you own because you left their faith, they hated me first. You notice he doesn't say if. He says when. What does that when mean? It means it's a foregone conclusion. Jesus is our king. He's not our king in the earthly sense. But he will be. So we have this tendency to think of, (laughs) I don't know why we do this. We're, We're so, sometimes the human brain just defies logic, all right? Just like with Satan. There are times that we act like there is no such person as Satan, right? We completely ignore all the evidence in Scripture that tells us that Satan is real. And then when we do something wrong, we all of a sudden act like Satan is equal to God. Well, the devil made me do it. Satan's temptations were just too powerful. I couldn't escape them. Right? So we have this this dichotomy in our thinking. We do the same thing with Jesus. We... Remember that Jesus is divine. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he's sitting at God's right hand. We forget that his kingdom is also going to be established in a physical way. We forget that he requires us to do things in a physical way. We're supposed to do things because we're saved. Ephesians 2.10, the works that he prepared beforehand for us to do. We forget that as a physical king, he gives us requirements. Again, as an American, I have a hard time with this whole king thing. As a federal employee, I'm a little bit more used to it because if the president says, I give an executive order for the the government to do blah, then guess what? I have to do that. But as an American citizen, if the president says, you know what? We're going to do this. (laughs) Sorry, that's unconstitutional. No, we don't. Right? President doesn't get to make laws. A king gets to decree his will whenever and however he wants. So when Jesus tells us, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself, guess what? I don't have the option of saying, you know what? That's not constitutional. Because who's the constitution in God's kingdom? God. As a matter of fact, love is part of his constitution. God is love. Oh. God says, forgive those who have done wrong against you. You know what? I don't feel like forgiving. Oh, that's part of his constitution as well. See, we forget, we think of Jesus as as purely spiritual. We think of that day when we're going to be walking the street made of gold and we're going to go through the gate made of pearl and we're going to be just blown away by the, the house that has many mansions. And we forget that the king has already spoken and said, do this. A king expects loyalty from his subjects. 
When Jesus asked the question of the Pharisees, whose son is the Messiah? And he exposed their lack of understanding when he came to the answer to the question. Look at what Matthew says there in verse 46. No one was able to answer him. Let me ask you a question. This is a kind of a pop quiz. See how much you guys have been paying attention over the course of the last month. Where did the Pharisees come from? Okay, there were people who wanted to do the right thing. They wanted to make sure the people of Israel did the right thing. But what was their origin? They were the rabbis and the scholars who taught God's word. They knew God's word backwards and forwards, left and right, up and down. They knew what the word of God said. And when Jesus said, okay, you know what the word of God says. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, he's David's son. That's easy. Then how come David calls him Lord? Matthew says in verse 46, none of them could answer him. I want to make a challenge to you. All right. These are people who knew God's word and could quote scripture at the drop of a hat. These were the people who debated the finer points of what it means when God says, keep the Sabbath day holy. What defiles the Sabbath day? What makes it unholy? What constitutes work? What is not work? What constitutes adultery? What is not adultery? What constitutes murder? What is not murder? They poured over the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. Jesus even commended them for their obedience to the tithe. Remember when Jesus said, you tithe on your mint and your cumin? From your garden, have you ever grown mint? All you have to do is look at the ground and say the word mint, and in six weeks you have a yard full. All right? It is completely invasive. And they would go through and they would pluck one and set it aside for the temple. And then they'd pluck nine and they'd put it in the kitchen. Then they'd pluck one and set it aside for the temple. They tithed on the herbs in their garden. If that isn't amazing enough for you, think about tithing on dill. Them itty-bitty, tiny, fine little leaves. But they were obedient to that because they knew God's word. Which of us can say we know God's word to that point? And they didn't know how to answer Jesus. How much more do we need to be careful when we're thinking about who the Messiah is? When we're thinking about what God's word has to say to us. Not only could they not answer Jesus, but at that point, they made a decision that would shape, that would shape the rest of Jesus' ministry and really set the stage for the persecution to come. Because Matthew says not only did they not answer him, they stopped asking questions. They stopped asking questions which means they knew here was a man who somehow knew more about Scripture than they did, who somehow had the authority and the ability to teach some knowledge of God that was well beyond what they had gotten in their training. And so they stopped asking questions and started trying to arrange for his execution. 
the one thing that Jesus did not do at this point. There's lots of other points where he did. He never accused them of being wrong. He just asked them a question to make them think. So if and when we encounter somebody out in the world who doesn't know Scripture, who doesn't know Christ, we need to make them think. Sometimes when we come to Scripture, we're going to encounter those areas that don't do anything but make us think. That's okay. God doesn't want us to follow blindly without thought. How do I know that? Look at Jesus' answer from last week. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. This has got to be engaged in our faith.